You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, FTX's attorney says substantial amounts of its assets have either been stolen or are missing. Today's bankruptcy hearing sheds light on FTX Group's current priorities after mishandling funds. And crypto contagion worsens with Genesis warning of possible bankruptcy. Now, Binance CEO CZ, who's positioning himself as the saviour of crypto, he's turned to the Middle East for cash for a crypto recovery fund. And Zoom's chief financial officer joins us to explain its slowest quarterly sales growth on record and plans to navigate the economic headwinds. But first, let's bring it back closer to home. It's a global story, of course, because it hits across the world, the FTX story. And we emerged, well, from the first FTX bankruptcy hearing on Tuesday. And it included an attorney representing the firm saying a substantial amount of FTX's assets are, well, missing. Let's break it all down, pretty most Katie Greifeld. Shock, awe, we're almost becoming numb to it to a certain degree, Katie. But what did you take away from the first hearing? It was a fiery first day. I would say in addition to what you were saying about, you know, the assets either being lost or stolen, this back and forth on the top 50 biggest creditors, the fact that their names are redacted, we don't know who they are. That was an interesting storyline for me because it's really unusual that actually their names wouldn't be made public. But there were at least two groups of crypto creditors. They sent their lawyers there. One of those lawyers was protecting or were, was working for members of that top 50 group really arguing that their identities should be kept secret and for now we know that they're going to remain unidentified. That's interesting when you try to map the contagion about what more shoes are we waiting to drop. We would like to know who's on that list but it's going to remain under wraps for now. Missing assets, also a debate around the assets and who should be doing what about what. Talk to us about what's happening in parallel in the Bahamas, Katie. Well, that's the thing. Who actually, what court has jurisdiction here or is going to handle it? That's been a, a sort of turf, turf war that has erupted here. We know that for now, these dueling liquidation proceedings in the Bahamas, they're going to be transferred to Delaware. Uh, you're still going to have FTX's U.S. restructuring advisors and regulators in the Bahamas. They're going to try to work out rules for sharing the information. But for right now, again, it looks like that's being transferred to Delaware. 
All right, Bloomberg's Katie Greifeld, thank you very much. Let's continue the conversation with Raghu Yadagada, CEO of the crypto trading platform FalconX. And Raghu, you have a history with FTX, which we'll get to. But I first want to ask you, what are you seeing among your user base, customer base in crypto markets? What does that reflect based on what's happening with FTX and the fallout from it? Absolutely. First off, good to be back. What we're seeing in the broader customer sentiment is definitely the first few weeks were shock, right? Because everyone knew that Alameda was a counterparty on FTX, but the lack of separation between these counterparties was a huge shock. Now, essentially, all the customers' uh, chatter is all about which shoe is going to drop next. So people are paying a lot of attention to exchanges specifically. So specifically to Asian exchanges, people are doing extended due diligence and making sure that things are okay there. But everyone is like very cautious at the moment. So your relationship with FTX, Mm -hmm. you did transact through FTX. Explain your historical relationship with FTX and where it stands now. Yeah, so we did have Alameda as one of our trading uh, parties as we started the business. But a few weeks to a month before this entire contagion, we stopped, we unwound that relationship, so zero exposure to Alameda. So as one of the largest brokerages on the planet, we do work with one of the largest liquidity providers out there, which is FTX. We have a small relative to our balance sheet position on FTX, uh, but we're in a very good place right now. When withdrawals were stopped, Did you have assets on the platform, Raghu? Could you repeat that again? When withdrawals from FTX were stopped, were you left with any assets for other counterparties on their platform? So if I understand your question correctly, I mean, about the assets on the platform, so essentially what uh, we're going to see is like, this is going to be an extremely complex legal situation. So multiple jurisdictions, multiple assets, multiple regulators involved. So we're all prepared for a very long drawn out legal process. So that is, uh, that's what us and a lot of our uh, customers are getting up to. The second aspect of it is a lot of information is missing Mm-hmm. Today's uh, hearing was a very good starting point, but at the same time, we didn't get a lot of material information just yet. So what we're seeing in the debt markets is, or essentially people trading the claims is, three to five cents on the dollar is where things are being priced in at the moment. Okay, but any, of, any assets that you were helping manage and move around, were they trapped in any way? Did you, what were your immediate reaction function at your business when withdrawals were halted at FTX? So first thing that we were looking at is essentially the news flow and all the information was uh, quite confusing at the start for everyone, right? Because it was a shock to the industry, uh, the notion that there is a massive liquidity crisis at FTX is definitely a surprise to us as well. But at the same time, we were well operating within our risk tolerance. And that is the advantage of coming to a broker versus going directly to an exchange. So we have a specified amount of funds that we did not cross at FTX or any other exchange that's out there. That was the reason why we walked out of this with a small uh, position relative to our balance sheet. Raghu, can you give us any size or scope on how your business has been hit by a lack of faith now in the industry broadly, a lack of trust now in the industry broadly. Yeah. So Q2, Q3 were record volumes with record number of customers onboarded for the, for the company, Ed. But if you look at the last two, three weeks, trust is fundamentally broken. 
and we see that. But one of the very interesting data point is, even within the last two, three weeks, we are not seeing a whole lot of customers actually pause and go away uh, you know, from the conversations. That was surprising. That's actually a good news for the sector. Definitely there is a lot of doubt. We need to rebuild trust. But at the same time, we are not seeing institutions walk away completely from the space just yet. What about some of the funders of you? Of course, Series D, you announced on social media, for example, 150 million came to you from backers such as Wellington Management, Tiger Global. Are those VC backers and crossover funds asking you, Raghu, for more details on your business? Are they asking hey. for perhaps some overall... Carol, I'm going to jump in yeah. here because I think Raghu's lost his, his ability to hear you, but Caroline's asking mm -hmm. about your backers, some mm -hmm. of your investors. Mm -hmm. What about them losing? faith have your investors been phoning you and saying what is going on what is our exposure to FTX yeah, yeah. so there's a lot of investor conversations especially if you look at the roster of investors that were associated with FTX these are some of the biggest names on the planet as a result there is definitely a lot of confusion and chaos in the early days within our investors as well so we did spend a lot of time thinking this through with our investors in terms of our risk limits. We walk them through the balance sheet, our approach. The good news here is FalconX as a company, we never take directional bets. And that was extremely powerful because the biggest learning out of the 2008 crisis uh, and what eventually led to the Walker rule is if market infrastructure companies start taking directional bets, the cascade amplification is going to be huge. And for that reason, when we started the company, we always were on the principle of never take directional bets. That is ultimately where the customer or uh, investors got comfortable with. All right. Raghu Yala Gada, a CEO and co-founder of Falcon X, thank you. Coming up, how economic uncertainty is affecting Zoom. This, as other tech companies are trimming costs. We'll talk all about that and more with Zoom's CFO, Kelly Steckelberg, next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's talk about the shares of video conferencing player Zoom. Ed, they dropped Tuesday after the company recorded its slowest sales growth on record. Now, a number of analysts were reacting to all of it, and you've got the breakdown. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, some analysts did cut price targets. At one point on Tuesday, the stock's down more than 10%. We closed down almost 4%. But what was really interesting for me was Morgan Stanley maintaining equal weight on the stock, price target $85 a share. But they're saying that even though growth was better than expected, in other words, it did not slow down as much as feared, they can't get rid of this narrative around the stock, this bearish narrative about Zoom. You and I have been discussing Zoom for what feels like a very long time. But in reality goes back to just the beginning of the pandemic when this name became a household name, right? Still, really big underperformance year to date. Zoom is one of the great laggards, right? Especially when we consider some of the names that you and I have tracked so closely, down almost 60% year to date. A big question I've got, how do they return to growth now in this genuine post-pandemic period, Caro? Let's ask. Woman who knows that. Zoom CFO, Kelly Stackelberg, we're pleased to say, is with us. And talk to us, Kelly, just about the economic headwinds, macro as they are. How do you, as a company, navigate that? How do you return to growth with your smaller customers in particular? Yeah, so we have two segments of our business, as you well know. We have the enterprise, which is supported by our direct organization, and we have the online portion of our business. And the enterprise segment is growing well. We had 20% year-over-year growth in Q3. And this is where you know we're seeing this transition from being a realer, really killer meeting app that everyone knows and loves us. As you say, we became known for during the pandemic to becoming a, a platform that really provides all of your collaboration and communication needs with Zoom phone, Zoom contact center, Zoom one, which is a bundle that brings them all together. The area that we are seeing headwinds is in our online segment of our business. And this is by its nature more international. So much more impacted by the strengthening dollar and you know the impact of FX that it's having, as well as the impact that we're seeing in Europe from the war. And then this is the area that we're seeing a little bit of macro as well. Some of these customers themselves being impacted by you know, seeing contractions and thus returning to you know cost-cutting potential considerations. We have seen churn in this segment of our business return to pre-pandemic levels. It's down to 3.1%, but we're seeing some challenges, as I said, headwinds in the new ad, and that's what we're really focused on and what we need to stabilize in order for it not to have that dampening effect on our long-term growth. Your long-term growth could M&A drive a part of that? I think you've talked about M&A in the past. So I guess my question to you is, how do you use M&A as a tool for growth? What kinds of companies will help you grow in those areas that are doing better? So what we've seen be successful for us in the past is acquiring companies that have technology that accelerate our building of those technologies. So for example, last year we acquired Solvi, which brought conversational AI, which is a much needed capability into our Zoom contact center product. 
We continue to look for opportunities like that, which accelerate our development. We also look for opportunities that could be a complement to us. So, you know, we recently announced at Zoomtopia that we have an email and calendar integration, also email and calendar services for SMB customers. And that's a perfect example of how we're continuing to extend into productivity tools and also a perfect opportunity to continue that expansion through possible M&A. Let's talk a little bit, when there's M&A, there's also, let's talk about a focus on costs. And actually, analysts were impressed by that cost control. But how much are you having to depend and look at future costs of your labor, in particular job cuts we're hearing from HP just in the last hour or so? So Zoom, by our nature, we have always been a very frugal company. We had a very interesting situation that during the pandemic, our growth really outpaced our ability to hire and invest. And we've been very focused on the last couple of years of getting caught up. There were areas that we needed to invest in, especially R&D. We're very close now to reaching our long-term targets, which means we will think very thoughtfully about hiring and investing going forwards in areas that are focused on driving innovation, driving growth. But of course, we want to be ensured that our expenses are not outpacing revenue and need to do that in a very measured way. And that is exactly the message um, that our leadership team is focused on, that we, our employees are focused on, especially as we're planning for FY24. Kelly, I mentioned the stock move Tuesday, you know, at one point down 10%, all told, you know, paired some of those declines. But this was the slowest quarter of revenue growth you guys have recorded. How much pressure do you as a management team feel right now? We always talk about this internally. What we can control is our own execution. And we are aligning our employees around continuing to focus on delivering on our customers' needs, on building out go-to-market infrastructure where we need it. For example, one of our focuses and initiatives is building out our partner ecosystem on an international basis. And keeping everybody focused on that rather than the stock price it is really the message and that's what we can control and so that's what we focus on at Zoom. What about control of the competition and of course innovation is to fend off some of that. Are you hearing from clients that they just have to cut and therefore they're going with teams or are you hearing that they cannot you know, make the purchase that they estimated in this time? You know, we've been really pleased with our renewal rates, especially in the enterprise, as I think we are all convinced now that the flexible work is here to stay. And so organizations realize in order to keep their employees productive and happy, they need to provide them the proper technology, which includes Zoom meetings, Zoom phones, also ensuring that the proper technology is in the rooms. However, you know, they are being very thoughtful about those purchases. And so we have a very competitive and compelling total cost of ownership. Zoom One is a bundle that brings all of our most needed products together at a very compelling price point. And so what we do see is more scrutiny around deals, but understanding and showing how we can create value for customers makes Zoom a great alternative, even in these environments where my peer CFOs are being thoughtful, very, very thoughtful about you know, commitments and investments for the future. All right, Zoom CFO Kelly Steckelberg, thank you for joining us here on Bloomberg Technology. EV maker Fisker has finally started building its vehicles two years 
after going public. The Ocean SUV just started rolling off assembly lines in Austria. It's targeting 40,000 units in year one and already has over 63,000 reservations. I caught up with Henrik Fisker, chairman, CEO and founder of Fisker, earlier today after he rang the bell at the MYSE. I think we actually, in my opinion, are at maybe just a height point of the recession. Uh, I don't think we're going into a recession. I think we're in the middle of it and getting out of it. And I can really feel that when we talk to our suppliers, they're getting people back into their facilities. Uh, we have had a rough time getting all our suppliers lined up. But we managed it, I think, together with Magna. Magna, of course, is a powerhouse in the automotive industry. Uh, so, you know, we are taking a, a kind of cautious approach. We are only making 300 vehicles in Q1 next year, then jumping really fast up to 8,000. And the reason for the 300 is because we want to make sure all our suppliers come with us. But we actually are seeing that our supply chain are, are very good. It's been tough, but they're there and they're with us. Henrik. Small volume of vehicles then in Q1. Are these vehicles coming here to the United States? And how does the infrastructure look to service the early customers? How do they take delivery? What happens if the car has a servicing issue? So we have, first of all, our own technicians with mobile technicians, which we can send all over the US. Uh, we also have a deal with Bridgestone, uh, uh, which have you know, more than 2,000 facilities all over the US. So we actually have more service facilities than even some of the largest automakers. So we are very well set up. We already have a couple of service centers, uh, a special powertrain center in, uh, in California. If there's any major issues, we can bring the vehicle there. But so far, the quality I've seen of these vehicles coming off the line in Magna is amazing. I've never seen anything like it. I've been over 30 years in this industry, and I feel really good about our product and the quality. That was Fisker's chairman, CEO and founder, Henrik Fisker. I've got to tell you, Caroline, I've been writing about that company for more than two years, and monthly, Henrik Fisker would say, November 17th, that's when production will start, 2022. And to his credit, it did. And then the backlog of orders, the production that comes, is it actually going to start to be a true competitor, Ed? Yeah, it's impossible to say. Their model, right, is to outsource manufacturing to Magna, a contract manufacturer. And that's why they're so confident about how many they can build, about why they're make, able to make it so affordable. And, you know, you look on the screen there at those pictures, it's more in line with what Americans like, bigger cars, right? But whether it will be successful, it will hit those targets, who knows? Remind the world of EVs is tricky. Remind me of the price point. It's about 40,000 US dollars, which if you go on Tesla's website right now, for example, or a Rivian that's nearer to 80,000, that's an astonishing price point to commit to. And that's what we kept asking him. Well, what about supply chains? What about input costs? What about semiconductors? He seems unfazed. Uh, you always bring out the best in these people, particularly with the long-term relationships you have. So he seems like quite a character. I'm not sure what the whole glove thing was, though, whether he rang the bell. Did he tell you? completely lost on me. It must be something to do with electrified, but yeah. Magician vibes, Ed. Magician vibes. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. And Ed in San Francisco, we're talking Apple wait times to get your hands on the brand new top tier iPhone 14 Pro. Then they're looking a little worrying for analysts ahead of the key holiday season, right? 
Right, look at the data. If I go on Apple's website right now, try and buy myself an iPhone 14 Pro or where you are in New York, it will tell me the delivery date is December 30th and there's a growing chorus of analysts that are worried that either consumers are like, well, it's not available right now, I'll wait. And that could impact sales for the holiday quarter, which could impact the stock. This is a stock that's performed just a little better than the S&P 500, but still down year to date. That's really the supply side of the story. But the demand side is really interesting as well. UBS Evidence Lab has done its annual global smartphone consumer survey. And it's interesting. 7,000 respondents and people surveyed across key markets, US, UK, Germany, China, Japan. In the US and China, the number of respondents that said they will buy an iPhone at some point in the next 12 months is down around a percentage point from the same period last year. But in other markets like the UK, like Japan and in Germany, actually the number of respondents saying yes, affirmatively, I will buy an iPhone at some point in the next 12 months is up. It's really interesting as well to look at some of the consumer behavior, especially the installed base age. In other words, that's a smart way of saying how long are consumers holding onto their smartphones. It really crept up in the most recent survey to around 20 months. Imagine holding on to your smartphone for 20 months. But the reasons why are even more informative, Caroline. Why do people upgrade their iPhones? Because the battery is broken or the battery life is drained because it's slow or simply because it's damaged. They don't seem motivated by upgrading to the latest handset because of the tech. Really interesting product to watch this holiday season. I don't have to imagine 20 months, Ed. I live 20 months. I push past 20 months. But in fact, maybe I'm not going to buy any electronics this holiday season. In fact, we came to you, our followers on Twitter, our audience, our engaged audience, about what on holiday are you wanting? What's your shopping list? What's your Santa's list looking like? And actually, most people still want experiences. We're in this post-COVID life where we want to go out and enjoy ourselves. 35.5% of you saying that. 26% a healthy quarter think it's electronics is where they want their money to be being put to work. Apparel furnishings, uh-uh, we stocked up too much in COVID and clearly a few just want cold hard cash or at least a gift version of that. I'm pleased to say though ahead of holiday shopping, we want to get a sense of how people are spending and whether they're being more thrifty or more thoughtful. Renee Morin's with us, head of sustainability at eBay and Renee, what you can give us is a really interesting take, particularly of where Gen Z are putting their money to work, because I certainly have started to rent more of my items, perhaps look for second hand. And is that more focused on money and a recession worry, or is that more focused on sustainability in the here and now? You know, it's really both. I think that re-commerce, the selling and buying of used and pre-loved goods, is really a dual issue. So people have the opportunity to get online, sell things that are laying around their house, and make a profit, potentially an extra couple of dollars in their pocket as we head into the holiday season. But at the same time, they're helping the environment. Not only does this item get a second life and not go to landfill, but you're also helping to avoid additional carbon emissions being put in the air, which is really critical when we're in a time of a climate crisis. Renee, what are people selling right now? They're selling just about everything you mentioned that people wanted in the, in the, in the state before. Um, yeah, electronics, apparel, handbags, sporting goods, whatever you, whatever you can imagine. We have it all on eBay and people are really buying um, all those items. Because they are also contributing to the circular economy, it's, it's a dual win. It's a win for your pocket and it's a win for the planet. Renee, eBay story technology name to some people a blast from the past to be fair but a lot of the data that i've read throughout tuesday suggests actually there is a younger audience 
going to eBay in search of goods, selling goods. My question is why? You know, are they driven by cost consciousness? Are they driven not so much about cost consciousness or, you know, value for money? I want the bang for my buck. Talk us through the spending patterns you're seeing. With, with the Gen Z and millennials, they're not having the same stigma attached to buying used, buying a pre-loved item that maybe my generation did. Um, they're seeing that there's there's money to be saved while you're participating online in the uh, circular economy. But they're also having the added benefit of knowing that they're not contributing extra waste to the landfill. They're not contributing um, extra emissions to the atmosphere. And so that circularity of seeing used goods being sold and being bought online is really increasing. Um, Over 50% of our surveyed participants uh, said that they're selling more used goods online than they have in previous years. So we're seeing a real trend here. What are some of the weird and wonderful things people are buying? Like really weird, really <laughs> wonderful. Really weird and wonderful. I there is an old story floating around about somebody trying to, I think, sell their soul, but that didn't really fly. So that got squashed pretty quickly. Um, but the wonderful things are those unique finds. There's a teacup that your grandmother may have had in a set, and it was broken. And then that one item is online. You were able to match it and bring it back and put it with the set that your grandmother had. So there's really a lot of opportunity, I think, on eBay, not just for the sellers, but for buyers as well. Um, And I'd also like to mention a related issue that we're working on right now has to actually do with Congress and 1099K forms. So there's a limit right now on selling on eBay and other marketplaces of $600. And if you sell $600 or more worth of items that could be laying around your home, you're going to get this tax form come January unless Congress acts now to change this threshold and raise it back up somewhere near where it used to be potentially. A year ago, it was $20,000. So you can see how this disincentivizes the potential for re-commerce, the potential for selling um, goods online that you can make a couple extra dollars as we head into the holiday season. Uh, You know, I think... um, we really do need Congress to take this seriously yeah. and take a good look at it. That's interesting, because particularly when you have lent into luxury items, you've been focusing on authenticity. You've been really leaning into, well, it's now kind of pulled back the whole NFT craze, but the focus on sneakers, on collections of just what people wanted to buy of collectibles. Is that going to be hit? What's the price point like as we go into this slightly slower economy? I don't think I have the data to speak specifically to that price point being the sustainability professional that I am. Mm. Um, What I can tell you, though, is that those luxury items that are being resold are just as valuable in terms of avoiding emissions and avoiding waste as their lower-end items. The sweaters that are in my closet, the average American household from our last survey has $4,000 worth of things in their household that they can sell. And now we're heading into the holidays. That could be the difference between putting uh, a present under the Christmas tree or exchanging gifts during Kwanzaa or even putting the turkey on the table. And so we don't want to see this 1099K form, which is could be really confusing and disincentivizing to casual sellers, impact what, what we want to see as participation in the circular economy. Okay. eBay Head of Sustainability, Renee Morin, thank you. Pivoting to digital assets. ARK Invest CEO Kathy Wood is defending blockchain technology after buying shares of Coinbase this week. Here's just some of her conversation with Carol Massa and Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. 
the infrastructure, the technology has not skipped a beat uh, throughout this entire crisis. In fact, the hash rate, uh, Bitcoin's hash rate is at an all time high. And that is a real indication of the security of the network. Uh, on Ethereum, we're seeing uh, the total value uh, uh, staked at 24 billion. That is an all time high. Uh, so we think the infrastructure is working beautifully. Um, as far as Coinbase, uh, this is an onshore uh, regulated uh, company and uh, wanting to help shape regulations. Brian Armstrong, the CEO, and Alicia, uh, CFO, have been leaning in into what's going on right now and saying, okay, uh, regulators, we need more clarity in order to protect uh, to protect investors. Those who wanted to uh, get involved with uh, certain types of crypto were forced offshore and uh, look at what's happened. So um, I, I think that Coinbase is going to come out mm -hmm. here uh, looking very, very strong. It just lost a very big competitor in right. FTX. Well, uh, what is the market missing, though? Because, you know, that could be one narrative, Kathy. But at the same time, we haven't exactly seen shares of Coinbase rally since FTX has collapsed. Do you think to yeah. you that represents potentially broader concern about just people's interest in crypto following FTX's collapse? No, I think it's more fear. I think uh, uh, many people say we don't know what we don't know. Uh, and uh, so what we do is we step back, uh, you know, put a little perspective into the situation here. And what do we have? Uh, so the entire crypto asset ecosystem is an $800 billion ecosystem. Apple is three times larger in terms of market cap. So that's some perspective. Many people are saying, well, oh, OK, is this another? Lehman, could this be, uh, you know, could could we see the domino effect here? I've just given you one reason why. Uh, the banking system uh, back in uh, 08, 09, trillions and trillions of dollars, and it was the global banking system. Uh, right now, we have, it seems, from FTX, uh, five to ten billion dollars uh, in creditors uh, if, uh, as, uh, as FTX has uh, filed bankruptcy, they will be making claims. Uh, if you look at Lehman, that was $1.2 trillion in claims. So again, just trying to put perspective, this is fraud. That was ARK Invest CEO, Kathy Wood. Coming up, more on crypto. Other Labs president, John Wu, discusses the crypto contagion and its impact on trust in the blockchain ecosystem. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. 
Grammarly. Easier said, done. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Crypto news abound. Let's get you up to speed with what they've been following just this week alone because FTX's attorney told a bankruptcy judge that a substantial amount of assets have been stolen or indeed are missing in what's been considered, quote, one of the most abrupt and difficult corporate collapses in the history of corporate America. That's according to the new CEO. Plus, Bloomberg's learned that the Binance CEO, of course, CZ, met with Middle East investors to raise money for his crypto recovery fund he's been talking about. And, of course, we reported yesterday Genesis warning potential investors investors, it may have to file for bankruptcy unless it can raise new money, while acknowledging there's a $2.8 billion in outstanding loans on its balance sheet, including to related parties such as, well, its parent company, DCG. For more on the state of the industry, the person who's behind a lot of this breaking news is Shanali Basak, she's with us, and Avalab's president, John Wu, pleased to say, is with us as well. And first and foremost, John, let's let's talk about how exhausted you are. Like, what is it like, the sentiment? You're in the underlying technology. You're about getting new rails for financial, for traditional finance to run on in a more crypto, crypto a more underlying efficient technological manner. Are people being put off coming to you at the moment? A little bit. Um, I would... Uh I have to say, there's definitely lack of trust now in the space. There were a lot of people who were already distrustful of the space to begin with. And with all of these things, that the drama that's happened in the last few months, they feel like they are going to equate that with the entire space. I'm in the middle. I see a lot of activity. I speak to all different types of partners, builders, exchanges, uh, market makers. And I can tell you it's actually really just a small percentage of these people. But these, the small percentage of people have a lot of control because they're in large centralized entities and these are the really the bad actors most people are good speaking of large and centralized that news about ftx not disclosing the names of the 50 creditors the top 50 this is supposed to be an industry about trust is there a problem here to not know who those top 50 creditors are as a crypto native i generally believe in full transparency and disclosing everything but in the situation we're in right now I almost feel like not disclosing a name is actually good because it could create bank runs at some of these places um, that's, that are still operating well. Talk to us, therefore, about what you worry in terms of contagion. You've talked about the lack of trust. You've talked about the worry of, of a lack of transparency. Everyone's now looking at the exchange they use or, or the tokens that some of the exchanges have, have of course, issued themselves. 
Is contagion, is there more shoes to drop, do you think? So I think you guys have done a great job of covering Genesis. Um, in my seat, I actually think Genesis is a bigger issue in terms of the capital markets of crypto than even FTX. Genesis was the largest lender out there. They, they've done unsecure as well as collateralized lending. Yeah. There's really no one else doing that lending. They, without them in the markets, all the people in the value chain, all the companies like market makers who need to borrow in order to do market making, you're going to see liquidity get sapped out of the markets, spreads widen, no investors want to come in, and you have a vicious cycle. So Genesis is a very important part of the crypto capital markets. And therefore, what, how much does it set it back if we do see a bankruptcy filing, for example, by such a juggernaut such as Genesis? Many, many years. Um, we're going to need some white knight to come in, maybe a traditional uh, finance player who's dabbled in the space and is willing to come in and take some risk. If you look at a lot of things out there in terms of instruments that trade, there's clearly a different sentiment from the TradFi community towards crypto versus the crypto native community. And you can look at it, the prices in terms of the futures curve, the CME futures curve, is, uh, you know, the out months are really negative for Bitcoin and Ethereum, whereas the perpetuals in the crypto native markets, which are also undated futures, are flatter. So it's not backwardation like so the what CME. do you think about trades like that? You look at that CME futures contract arbitrage, you look at what's happening with the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, these are financial assets like any other financial asset right now. Is it a good money-making opportunity or is it too risky to trade? It's an incredible arbitrage opportunity that you can make, you know, 25% on an annualized basis. But the issue really is you can't find a counterpart to help you put that trade on because nothing is flowing in the markets right now. The, the largest lender out there has a trickle ripple effect to everyone else is not lending. So if they're not lending, uh, counterparties are not taking risk either. What does the crypto market look like without that kind of leverage anymore? We go back to the previous cycle. We're talking about 2015 to 2018. Um, leverage needs to be controlled. Leverage is not bad. In every economy and every uh, uh, marketplace, you need lending and borrowing to some extent. Otherwise, you don't have money growth. And we need some of that back into this market to get the markets going again. I'm interested in this talk of a traditional finance giant, maybe a kind of crossover investor who's dabbled already. Who could do that and have the will of the regulators, the will of, well, Washington on their side? Well, first of all, I think all the existing players, when this is all done, I think 80% of the companies in this current crypto capital markets will be gone. And the 20% that are still around, um, they're going to have to take a leadership role. They're going to work. They need to work with regulators and come up with good regulation. Even if it's bad regulation, it's better than no regulation. And then you'll have perhaps banks come in to pick up the pieces and buy parts of the market structure because they'll be more comfortable and they'll inject a lot of liquidity. Or you have traditional market makers, whether it's Citadel coming in, they've dabbled in the Citadel Securities, or a Jane Street or well-known high-frequency funds who are very adept in this market. The market making side, but what about the traditional players here? We reported this morning, for example, Apollo is looking to list a digital asset strategy on a blockchain. You're doing something similar with a bunch of uh, counterparties, including KKR. So 
are they concerned, given the broader rhetoric around crypto? Because those tokens, your, your blockchain has a token as well. Everyone is a little concerned. I cannot say no one's concerned. But with that said, even if the capital markets in crypto are broken, the technology is still continuing. So Apollo's announcement of raising a fund using a tokenized version of that, uh, Ava Labs, Ava Lanch, uh, tokenizing part of a KKR fund, really shows that the technology and the innovation is going to continue and the benefits will accrue to the people who are in the space. And it's interesting, one of the conversations I had with Mike Cagney, who's the CEO figure about this particular announcement, was that stable coins could be mm -hmm. an onboarding ramp for these private equity funds. Can that happen? Is there enough security in the stable coin system as it exists today for it to be a feeder, essentially, into the traditional financial system in a bigger way? Well, yes, in terms of the security. And that's the ultimate benefit. When you have multi-parties that need to exchange information and payment simultaneously, that's the real benefit of a blockchain technology. So you need that token in that sense, whether it's a stable coin or a different token. That's the real benefits that you can provide to uh, cutting costs and creating more efficiency in existing financial systems. And look, let's not forget, it was just last week that the New York Fed was talking about digital dollar and pilots there. So there's still innovation to be had. And Ava Labs, President John Wu, we thank him for coming on and just talking about the space. And we hope we get some sleep. Bloomberg, Shanali Basak as well, all over this story. Going viral, Saudi Arabia scoring one of the biggest World Cup upsets ever by beating Lionel Messi's Argentina 2-1 on Tuesday. Messi gave Argentina an early lead with a penalty kick, but Saudi Arabia scored two goals within five minutes of each other in the second half of their clinch victory. Now, the Argentina loss has spillover effects into crypto as well. You wouldn't believe it, but the Argentina fan token offered through partnerships with Socios crashed a quarter. 23% according to reports. Now, Argentina is among international teams and some domestic clubs that offer fan tokens. For example, Portugal's token is down ahead of the match against Ghana on Thursday. And Ed, I can't get over the amount of things that are going viral around soccer at the moment, or football as we would call it, because Ronaldo, Ronaldo from Man United, with 500 million Instagram followers, he's walking. And I understand Man United is what? Considering its options for sale. Ronaldo is out of United, it is official, and then the owners, the Glazers, minority equity owners come out and say, yeah, we're looking at options for the club, and it's all across Instagram, Twitter, you name it. We should be talking about the World Cup on the pitch. Yeah. It's what's happening off it that continues to dominate the headlines and what people are talking about on social. Just extraordinary. My entire Twitter, Instagram, whatever wall that you're looking at, TikTok, is a flood of World Cup news. This man owning Instagram, of course, with his amount of followers. That does it for this edition, Ed, of Bloomberg Technology. Wednesday, we've got Autodesk, okay? Yep, and check out our podcast on all the platforms you usually go to. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.